you know, I always tell folks unapologetically, like, hey, the secret to making it through uh, SEAL training is whenever you're feeling sorry for yourself or tired or you don't want to get out of bed or your knee hurts or whatever it is, there's somebody in that class that is suffering more than you who will, will eventually be a really good SEAL. Go find that person and help them. And if you always do that when you're feeling bad, you will make it through, right? Because you will, you'll never have time to sit down and have a pity party. You're just always ready for the next thing and you're helping somebody else get ready for it. And by the way, you're gonna be that, that guy eventually and somebody else will seek you out and say, hey, let's go, you can do this. Hey everyone, I'm Cal and welcome to the Intentional Leader Podcast where we are passionate about studying self-leadership to help you reach your God-given potential and lead at your best so that you can make your highest impact. I hope you enjoy this episode. Let's go make it count. Well, hello everyone and welcome to episode 86 of the Intentional Leader Podcast. I'm Cal and I'm so thankful to have you joining us today. Today, I'm very privileged to have Chris Fossil join us on the show. Chris is the president of the McChrystal Group, a leadership consulting firm based in Alexandria, Virginia and London, England. He became the president in 2018 after joining the firm as a partner in 2012. Chris left the Navy in 2012 after serving for 15 years as a Navy SEAL. And we get into a lot about being a Navy SEAL in this episode. Chris is also the author of the 2017 Wall Street Journal bestseller, One Mission, How Leaders Build a Team of Teams. And he is the co-author with Stan McChrystal, general retired Stan McChrystal, of the 2015 New York Times bestseller, Team of Teams, New Rules of Engagement for a Complex World. Both fantastic reads that I highly recommend. I'll put links to both of those books in the show notes. He's a senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, a senior fellow at New America, a lifetime member of the Council on Foreign Relations and member of the Board of Trustees with the Naval Postgraduate School Foundation. He also co-hosts a weekly podcast, No Turning Back with General Stan McChrystal, where they interview the world's most consequential leaders. I really wanted to pick Chris's brain about the state of leadership in the world today. I was just recently listening to an episode of the Craig Rochelle Leadership Podcast where he was talking about leading out of a crisis. And it it made me think about some things I hadn't thought about, especially the last two years of leadership. We've really been leading in a crisis, but now we have to lead out of the crisis. And I hadn't thought about the toll that the last few years has taken on me as a leader and also taken on the people that I lead. I'll put links to that Craig Rochelle Leadership Podcast episode in the show notes. I think it's worth listening to. But I wanted to dive in with Chris Fussell about what he's seeing from leaders as we deal with the great resignation, as we lead out of this crisis. What are the best leaders doing out there during the pandemic and now leading out of the pandemic? And there's so many other things beyond the pandemic. But he gives us some great advice and some great perspective on that. If you're interested in learning about the grueling training that Navy SEALs go through, you're going to love this episode. Chris walks us through SEAL selection from his experience, what he thought were the most difficult parts of SEAL training, how he persevered mentally. We talk about some of the mental cues that he would use to get through that training. We also dive into the leadership qualities that he most admires about General Stan McChrystal. He's been able to observe him in business 
And also when he was in the military, when uh, he served as his aide de camp. And he gives us his top piece of advice for young leaders at the end. So stick around for that. And before we jump into today's episode, I want to let you know that we've been combing through some of our best interviews over the past few years. And we've consolidated some of the best takeaways from the best interviews into a 12-page PDF that outlines 12 ideas that we think will make you a better leader. I encourage you to go download this. Just go to intentionalleader.org. You'll be able to get this. It's just 12 ideas, make you a better leader in 2022. You can take one of these for the next 12 days and just think about it. We take these hour plus long interviews and distill them into one idea. So we took 12 interviews, made each one one idea that you can digest, think about, marinate on, journal about in your leadership time and in your time of reflection. But I encourage you to go check this out. It's a free guide. I want to give it to you, intentionalleader.org. This episode is brought to you by Higher Echelon Incorporated. Higher Echelon is a leadership development and organizational performance consulting firm providing human capital and technology services to optimize performance. Higher Echelon helps prepare you and your organization to meet the rapidly changing complex and often ambiguous requirements of today's world by helping you develop resilient and adaptive leaders. If you want to learn more about Higher Echelon, go visit higherechelon.com to connect with the amazing team over there. Dr. Joe Ross and his team are fantastic, and they can help you through some of the difficulties that we talk about on today's episode with Chris Fussell. If you enjoy this episode, I just want to ask you to do me a favor. Go and share it with someone. Go and share it with someone in your network. Go and share it with a friend, maybe text it, send it over social media. If I see you on social media, I will definitely let you know, engage with you. Um, And also one other ask, I just want to ask if you've gotten value out of this podcast, would you go to Apple podcast and rate and review the show? I read all of those. They're very encouraging. I always really appreciate the feedback because that's one of the things about a podcast. I can't see you (laughs) directly. I don't know exactly what value you're getting out of it. I hear from a lot of you on a regular basis and I'm so thankful for those Uh, But also it helps other people look, if they're looking for leadership podcasts, they see a review from someone that they got value out of an episode or value out of this podcast, they're more likely to listen to it and join our community. So those are two asks. One, would you share it? And then two, would you mind leaving a rating, a review? I really appreciate that. And so without any further ado, please enjoy this conversation with the inspiring Chris Fussell. All right, Chris Fussell, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being on today. Hey, thanks, man. Really looking forward to the discussion. I So one of the questions I always like to ask people, and we're, we're recording this towards the end of 2021, during a moment of reflection, uh, kind of the end of year, I'm curious personally, Chris, what have been some themes in your life this year? What, what are some themes that have kind of risen to the top uh, over the 2021, which has been a crazy year, just like 2020. And we're going to get into some, maybe some leadership themes that you've seen, but what, what have been some personal themes in your life this year? Yeah, it's a, it's a great place to start. I, I think it's, you know, it's hard to get out from underneath the, the pandemic and political machinations as sort of top of mind stuff. I think for, for so many of us, um, that's all kind of merged together in some weird way. Um, so my, my wife and I, about two years ago, at the start of the the pandemic, uh, we were living in D.C. We'd been there for about eight years, lived, lived on Capitol Hill, and uh, we made the decision to move to uh, West Virginia. Um, so we now live in the 
southern southern central part of West Virginia, um, right in the heart of uh, Appalachia and the sort of outdoor heart of West Virginia um, along the New River Gorge National Park. Um, we've had a place up here for many years as sort of a weekend family getaway. Um, we're, we're big into uh, rock climbing. Sport climbing is, is a huge sport here, mountain biking, river sports, skiing, etc. And so with the all the changes going on, we thought, you know, like many others, maybe this is the, the window to just, you know, we, we're as a consultant, you're mostly remote anyway. And, and so we've now called this home base and I travel out of here. We still have our headquarters for our group in DC, but that's sort of opened up all these different, to your point around the last year, sort of settling into a very new, different, exciting, interesting lifestyle um, for the two of us. And then our kids who are now, you know, teen or preteen ages um, and to watch and support them as they've gone through a similar transition from living in the heart of the city to living in, you know, a rural and super interesting part of the country. Um, it, understanding what places like this have to offer, understanding the differences in, in the cultures between different parts of the country. I mean, that's been a really exciting journey, I think for the whole family and definitely uh, very cool as a parent to watch your, your kids uh, sort of figure out that there's much more to the world than, the immediate environment they, they grew up on in. Um, and so that's what's really been top of mind for us for the last 12 to 18 months, actually. I love that. That's so, that's so neat. It, it was part of that, a, a move to a, a more rural environment. Was that kind of part of the motivation or, or just maybe more uh, family time? Or I'm, I'm just kind of curious behind that decision. Probably a combination of things. Um, the, I mean, we've, we've known this. I started climbing up here in the New River Gorge uh, in the 90s. Um, and any of your listeners that are that are sport climbers especially will be f- very familiar with the, with the new, as it's called, in the climbing world. Um, and so we, we bought a home here in the early 2000s. Um, and then when I left the military in 2012, my wife started uh, – found the opportunity to come – use our home here much more regularly. And we got to the point where the kids were sort of doing half of their summer here. And um, we'd known the community well, but then the last eight to 10 years really nested even deeper inside of it, um, which has been awesome. And so when the decision came, hey, maybe maybe this is time to reevaluate things, there was one only logical choice, which was let's, you know, let's find a, a, a permanent home up in the New River Gorge area. Um, it wasn't this or move to Colorado or something else. It was this or stay in, in where we were. So, um, yeah. And then on the backside of that, a whole host of things that are associated with the, 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 uh, the outdoor opportunities, um, the living in the middle of nature opportunities. I mean, it's just endless what you get when you come to a place like this. Do your kids climb? Uh, yeah, they they do, uh, back and forth, you know, kids climbing is a different sort of sport. It's not a, um, it's not immediately natural for most young kids. And so they go through these phases of wanting to get out of the time and disinterested. So I think the number one thing I've learned from other folks that love the sport is let them be the guide, you know, when they're into it, they're into it when they want to just hike down and sit and read a book next to the crag. That's also cool. Um, and days they don't want to go out, you got to respect that. Right. So, um, they've both gone through their back and forth phases, you know, they're both good little athletes. So they'll, whatever they want to tackle, 
I, I leave it up to them. But we just we're in ski season now, so that's their their primary f- focus. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Um, well, I want to ask you also. So, looking at your writing and looking at your work and consulting, uh, I'm just curious some of what you're seeing from leaders right now over the past year or so. So you've got, we've obviously got COVID, we've got the great resignation as it's being called. We've got the division, the political division, uh, important discussions about race and diversity. And I, I just feel like you have a good finger on the pulse of leaders as you have these conversations with executives uh, and, and the stuff you, you think about a lot. What seem to be some of the biggest pain points for leaders right now? And that can be organizationally or it can be individually as leaders. What are some of the struggles for leaders that you're seeing in society right now? Yeah, I, I, you know, there's no easy answers to, to when you look at things through that lens. I think, um, you know, an analogy that runs around my head is, um, I mean, you hit the big ones, right? Of course, people are stressed, overworked, uncertainty, stress in the workforce, um, social conversations that are important and bubbling up in, in parallel um, from sort of what's the future worker look like and what are, what what are they owed in that relationship and conversation with uh, leadership to um, all the other diversity equity conversations that are that are happening. Um, obviously, the uncertainty around the pandemic, the settling into some sort of hybrid work structure that's happening very organically. Um, so there's a whole list of things like everybody's thinking about. Um, but in my mind, like where we are now is not dissimilar from the conversations around, you know, where the military was in 2006 or seven, right? Um, where we were engaged in two very, very difficult conflicts that were expanding. There are a lot of little proxy fights going on around the world as well from uh, socioeconomic with bigger players to, you know, kinetic uh, fights in other weird pockets around the world. And if you'd have asked, you know, what, what are the military leaders thinking about right now? Well, the obvious answer is, you know, we're, this is the most complex thing that's arguably happened in multiple generations for military leaders. Um, th- so there's no e- easy answers. What I saw come out of that, what I think is coming out of, of today's struggle in the, with, with what's going on around the world is, you know, well, what are the best leaders doing back then? The best leaders, uh, didn't complain about where they were. Um, instead, they said, okay, what's what's working? How do we do more of that? What have we always assumed would work, but isn't it? We need to just cut it away. Um, just, you know, that old saying in the military, um, you know, if I, I learned this from Stan McChrystal as an army saying, if you're if you're taking effective uh, mortar fire, just move. Like it doesn't, it doesn't matter which way you go, right? Just get out of that particular spot, right? And so I think that's what some of the best leaders I'm seeing right now are doing, right? Hey, nobody, nobody saw this coming. We got blindsided. We can uh, arm care, arm, armchair quarterback this forever, or we can just accept the fact that we've been taking heavy uh, direct fires for the last two two years, and let's let's move out. Let's find some things that are working and move in that direction. Um, and there's a sense of positivity in that. I mean, that's what when I was in the SEAL teams, that's what. The, and those were hard years, as many of your listeners will remember. And that's been it's been a hard 20 years. But the best leaders that we were all attracted to were the ones that said, hey, we're on a team. We're, we're going to work together. I don't know what the right answer is, but I can tell you that seems to be working. So let's move in that direction. Let's do more of that. Let's communicate more effectively. Let's share information more effectively. All the things that we obviously uh, learned then and believe in now. Um, so similar sort of leader behavior, I think, is what's critical 
because uh, this isn't over. You know, this is we're going to be in some sort of weird window for the next several years, even if it's just a recovering rebuild. You know, we now have a generation of young employees who don't know what normal looks like, and therefore, they will ne- we'll never go back to what normal was. Right? They're redefining what the future is going to look like, and I think they're looking for leaders that that are willing to go on that journey with them. What's your take on the great resignation, as, as it's being called? Are, are you seeing that from your perspective? Or, or do you think that that is, uh, do you think that's maybe overstated a bit? Um, I, I don't particularly like the name um, because I think it, it makes it seem um, perhaps too intentional, maybe, maybe overstated. Um, and I don't think there's anything shocking about it, frankly. You know, um, if you think of all the things that hit, um, and there's too many variables there to to, to dive down, but um, all at once, the fact that people sat back, reconsidered where they were in life, and made choices, um, it's it makes complete logic logical sense. You know, there was an alien force watching us. They would say, "Yeah, of course that happened, right?" It just makes it makes sense. Um, and so I think it'll resettle. I think it's. Uh, I mean, we've certainly seen it in, you know, we in our the McChrystal Group. We work in a range of different uh, parts of industry um, and organizations all around the world, and some and some really large one up up into the you know Fortune twenty, Fortune ten space. Um, and so they're dealing with it. They're figuring it out. Um, but I think it's like all all things. You know, there's where the pendulum will hit its high point and sort of resettle. And part of the resettlement will be leaders that, to the previous question, are saying, not not trying to get back to where things were in 2019 or whatever the high watermark on the other side looks like that for them, but saying, you know, how do we how do we level up the pendulum? What's what's the middle ground look like here? What's the expectation of this workforce that's been in a, uh, you know, a two to three year cycle of redefining itself, repositioning itself? And let's let's get it there quickly and move out. I love hearing your perspective on this, and I appreciate you sharing it, Chris, because I, I think you, General McChrystal, the McChrystal Group, I mean, you all have been thinking differently about leaderships, organizations, teams, dynamics, I mean, for a while. That, that really is what uh, I think I, I gleaned from Team of Teams and from your following work with uh, One Mission. And so it's neat to hear your perspective um, because I think you guys have brought some of those JSEC, JSOC concepts to the private sector. Um, so, so thanks for sharing that. I want to peel it back just a little bit um, because I'm I'm fascinated by your your upbringing and and seal selection uh, or the seal training that you went through, buds. And I think a lot of people are fascinated by that because it's really cool. Um, what from like a high level perspective, what what does buds look like? What does that training process look like? Yeah. So. Um- most of your leaders will be familiar, but just as a, at a high level. Um, so the SEAL teams, one of, uh, you know, one of these special operations units underneath Special Operations Command, underneath bigger DOD, um, you know, and the SEAL teams proper are, uh, you know, personnel-wise sort of a rounding error inside the U.S. Navy, as is so common inside of the U.S. military, right? Um, but over the last 20 years or so, those parts of the military have gotten um, a whole bunch of press. Um some some good some some bad. Um, we can talk more more about that uh, if if it's of interest. Um, 
But I grew up in the SEAL teams, was in th- that community from the late 90s until 2012 on active duty. Um, and so got the fortunate experience of living inside of that world, inside the special operations world during a you know a decade of real transformation and then directly working for Stan McChrystal, I think was the uh, sort of the architect of some of those most important changes. Um, to get into the SEAL teams, you go through an early selection model called BUDS, as you mentioned, basic underwater demolition SEAL training, uh, whose roots go all the way back to the 60s in Vietnam. Um, and so that's a, it's about a six to eight month process, depending on, you know, as you cl- join a class and it takes time to form up. So they, they'll put five or six classes through a year. They've been doing that for 50 years. I don't, I don't know. I think the numbers off the top of my head. Um, and so that's a lot of, uh, experimentation, right? And so in that six month process, essentially is the core of the training. It's split into three subsections. Uh, I'm a little bit dated, but I think it still basically runs through the same model. Um, with the first phase being essentially, uh, physically, mentally exhausting and, and somewhat brutal. The idea there is I'm going to take two months to really weed down who's got the fortitude and the grit to be here. So I'm going to, they're going to be cold, wet, and tired essentially for, for, you know, 60 straight days. Right. And then I've, I've taken my class that might start with, let's say round numbers, a hundred people at the end of that first phase, I'll get it down to like the 30 or so folks that really are focused on being there. And then in second phase, I'm going to teach them all the under, I'm going to give them a baseline of the underwater skills that are necessary uh, to be effective in the community, that you'll lose some folks there. And then I go into my third phase where I'm going to work on some of the basic, uh, you know, infantry infantry skills, uh, land navigation, shooting, et cetera. I mean, very rudimentary stuff. Um, And so at the end of that, I'll have, say, 20 people that graduate from my initial class of 100. Um, And then they now they go into a uh, an extended multi-month advanced training uh, window at the end of which they get their warfare insignia, the, the trident of the, of the SEAL teams. Um, so that whole process is about a year. I think nowadays they go to, they do some basic um, parachute training in the middle of that as well. The idea is they show up to their first SEAL team as a, as a functional unit member and could be put right into a SEAL platoon, which is the, you know, the small op- smallest operating element of the SEAL teams and deploy the next day and be functional enough to, to, to be employed in a, in a combat zone. Um, so that's a little bit of the, the history of, of what we're talking about here. Um, you know, I think every special operations community has a version of what I just described. Uh, they all have their strengths and weaknesses, um, far more strengths than weaknesses. Um, and there's some equivalencies across the entire board. Um, a lot of those units from Army Rangers to uh, Special Forces to uh, Air Force CCTs, PJs, Marine Special Operations Uh, I would say some of the common denominators, we've all built out selection models that identify um, folks with the baseline physical readiness. Um, Can you run this fast? Can you do this many pull-ups, sit-ups, et cetera? So you want a certain level of of endurance, physical endurance. And, you know, I always tell people, hey, if you're a decent athlete, anybody can get through a day or two of – buds in the seals or ranger school the question is can you get through the 37th day or the 43rd day you know when you just every part of your body says sleep in you know it's just it's not worth it you hate the instructors you're exhausted your knee hurts um and you know day 48 is going to be just as hard as day three was and you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel right and so what those 
for most people. What those models do is very effectively identify, and we can argue forever where this is, this is born or learned. I think it's a combination of both, but they all select for people that can, when necessarily necessary, compartmentalize down to sort of micro moments. And sometimes that's just, I'm going to do one more pull-up. Uh, sometimes it's, I'm going to get through this next run. Sometimes it's, I'm going to get through this next 12 hours, right? Or sometimes you feel good. Hey, I'm not worried about the next week. And those that on day 17 of a six or eight month process are thinking about month six, while their knee hurts and they're tired, they're in a lot of trouble, right? You're not going to get you're not going to get the next pull up if you think, oh my God, I'm six months away from this being over. Um, but you'll get to lunch if you think I only have to finish this run and then I'm going to have 30 minutes to sort of clear my head and I'm not worried about what happens after lunch. So I think at its core, that's what all of those models do a really good job of identifying and selecting for. Well, thanks for get thanks for uh, sharing that. I think that's that's helpful. And uh, you know, when I when I went through Ranger School, we had people who you know they were kind of the hungry Rangers. There was the uh, the sleepy Rangers. I, I was probably a little of both. Um, I'm I'm curious for you, Chris. What was what were some of the hardest aspects for you? Are there in, or are there any moments from buds that just really stand out as being especially difficult? Yeah, I think that's. Uh, I love that saying. I, we never use that in the SEAL teams, but there there are certainly uh, in SEAL uh, in buds in selection. Um, but there are certainly different areas that challenge folks differently. I mean, there's no there's no Captain America that just comes and goes straight through any of those programs, right? They're designed for everybody to find multiple things very very challenging and difficult. Um, but the um, all, all of them, I mean, Ranger School, obviously, as well, are big on sleep deprivation, right? You go extended periods with a ridiculously small amount of sleep. Um, I mean, the SEAL selection is known for Hell Week, which is starts Sunday night, ends Friday sometime, TBD, late afternoon, whenever they deem you're, you're done. Um, and in that cycle, you know, you get anywhere from zero to like two or three hours of sleep, um, which, you know, after 48 hours, you're just no one can really function at any sort of competent level. Um, but you got to keep pushing through ranger school does. I think you could, you would know far better and everyone through ranger school, but, um, over a 60 day cycle, you know, you're basically in sleep deprivation at a, at a smaller scale, but for the entire thing. Right. So it's that challenges you physically and intellectually. You can't, you can't think or just muscle your way through that. There's something your inner grit that has to push you through that which is why you end up with, with sleepy rangers. Um, <laughs> but for, for me, I think the one thing that the SEAL community does, uh, because it has to, is figures out who can handle um, comfort in the water and then the mental tolerance for being cold, um, which is a, a whole different type of pain. <laughs> uh, and most, most folks that go through that training uh, similar to ranger school, far more so in ranger school, you're moving, you're burning so many calories that you will, uh, your your body fat gets very low, regardless of what you're built like coming in. Uh, most most folks go on a pretty severe diet, whether they mean to or not. And then in, in the SEAL teams in Budge, you combine that with being in the Pacific Ocean, all the selections held down in Coronado, California. 
you know, and the water temperature's 57 degrees or whatever it is, and uh, you're, you're, you're in that water constantly for extended periods of time. Sometimes you're just sitting in it because the instructors are mad at you and they want to watch you get close to hypothermia. Um, that mental anguish, that level of, um, and again, it's sort of like anybody can pass one day. Anybody can get really cold and then hop out and say, well, that kind of sucked. It's when you, you get really cold and you hop out and you, you do 10 burpees to get just enough blood flow so you're not going to die. And then you, you go back in the water and you do that cycle you know, and it starts at sunset and there's three instructors out there and they just tell you, hey, we're going to do this until somebody quits. It's nothing hard. It's not physically hard enough for anybody to say, I can't, I can't physically do another pull up or I can't run that fast. I mean, anybody can do what I just described. The question is, do you have the mental fortitude to get warmed up and then turn around and go back into that freezing cold surf at two in the morning um, when, when nobody's out there to, to tell these psycho instructors to stop, right? That's when it gets, and of course, I mean, it's, it's very disciplined. I mean, the, the instructors are, are brilliant at what they do. They are not out there to hurt anyone. They know exactly, it's a very scientific process. We've had 50 years to refine it, but they know what they're doing. They are looking for the person that says, for no other reason, I just, I can't mentally convince myself to get back into the ocean right now. And so th those were always the worst evolutions when the, you knew all the instructors, everybody knew their personality, and you're like, okay, you know, here's instructor Smith. He's absolutely the worst person to deal with. It's two in the morning. And when he says, we're going to do this until somebody quits, he means it. Like, you're going to lose somebody. And you're all looking down the line going, all right, Walters, I think you're close. You know, why don't you do us all a favor, you know? Uh, so that's when it gets most intense. Do you remember where you would mentally go at moments like that when when it's just really cold? You're 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 just somebody's gonna have to quit. Uh, I remember I, I went through Ranger School in the winter time, and uh, it, and that was one of the hardest aspects for me was just the cold. Uh, I remember my father in law came to visit at one point, and uh, he was you know, we were not well. It wasn't my father in law at the time. Actually, I was trying to uh, marry his daughter, and uh, he offered me a mint. And I literally, my hands were so just cold from the, the time of being out there. I couldn't even open the mint. Uh, I just remember that that vividly. It's such an embarrassing moment in front of my uh, future father-in-law, which uh, <laughs> he did become my father-in-law, thankfully. But um, yeah, I'm just curious, like mentally, where would you go, Chris, during those really difficult, or, or do you even remember? Was it, is it something that you can even recall or just kind of just gut it through? No, it's a great question. I think, um, I think most people that have the wiring and I'm not saying it's, it's better or worse, but it's definitely a different sort of wiring to get through stuff like that. Um, do s have some sort of mental practice unintentional that, that allows them to sort of separate from the, from the moment a little bit. Um, yeah, if I thought back, I probably had some pretty consistent reels that I would run through. Um, I mean, underpinning this, I came from, which is not uncommon as you would know in these communities, I came from a family uh, legacy of, of, military, not a lot of senior leaders in my family, like no general officers or admirals, but um, my grandfather was in World War II. My cousin was a Marine recon. His brother was a, his, just got out of the SEAL teams. I have a brother who was a SEAL. My, my older brother was in SEALs. I was in SEALs. My dad was a Green Beret. So like part of that just gives you a um, don't, 
if you quit, like you can never go home for Christmas, right? Like, so you're going to have to like drag me out of here. I'll just never, you know, you have got all that sort of upward pull or downward pressure, however you want to look at it to say, oh, you committed to this. Like this is a, this, this defines sort of the, the rest of your life here. Um, so that was a helpful drive. Um, and then mentally, you know, I grew up as an athlete, so I probably like on these endlessly long swims for me, that was sort of the worst part of, of seal training. I mean, I grew up on the beach, so it was very comfortable in the ocean. Um, but just freezing cold and you, you know, every, every other day you're out there doing like a couple miles swim in the Pacific. And those were the worst. Cause there's, it's just you in your head. You have one swim buddy, but you're in masks and stuff. You can't talk to each other the whole time. So you've got, you know, however long it takes, you're an hour plus in just in your head. And so those are the times where I would, uh, think probably back to like, um, wrestling practices, um, and just imagine myself like, I don't know if you grew up, what sport you grew up in, but wrestling is like endless drills, you know, yeah. I shot, you know, 12,000 single legs in my, in the wrestling room in my career. And so you could just put yourself in that state, like imagining a certain move and just repeating it in your head, you know, just to give yourself that drumbeat of consistent, um, uh, distraction, um, things like that probably, um, were very helpful to me in those, um, alone in your own thoughts moments. Yeah, no. I were you a strong swimmer before you went to buds? Is that is that kind of a, you got to be pretty strong in the swimming department, or you can do average swimmers make it through? Well, it's you know it's interesting. Um, the answer is yes. Average swimmers do do make it through. Um, it is a, and I tell this to folks all the time when they're thinking about you know I, I would love to go through buds. What about swimming, right? So look, you know it's 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 a really it's a nice to have mostly because energy, just like ranger schools, you would know, the more energy you can hold on to, the better the rest of your day is going to go, right? And so if you grew up as a swimmer, swimming a couple miles is like, for average people like me and you, like kind of going for a walk, right? I'm not really expending much energy because I'm just so efficient. And I was not never a competitive swimmer, super comfortable in the water, grew up as a lifeguarding at the ocean and all that stuff. So like jumping through big surf didn't intimidate me, but it didn't mean I was an efficient swimmer at all. And so I would burn, I don't know, twice the energy of a good swimmer on that two miles, three miles swim, whatever you're doing. Um, and then there were folks that burnt a lot more, right? Cause they, I mean, I remember our, my first ocean swim with my class that I went through with hundred of us swim out, you know, you got to go a quarter mile out to these buoys and you start this long swim and they're just going to tell you when to turn around. So it's sort of this mental game as well. And there was a kid in who ended up making it through training and, you know, his eyes were kind of big and, and uh, I knew him decently well at that point. I'm like, you doing okay? He's like, well, I've never been in the ocean before. He'd literally never been in the ocean. He grew up in like Iowa or something. Hard as nails, right? And... He was one of the younger kids in our class. He makes it through all the way through in one class just because he's, you know, just determined, like unbreakable sort of kid. First time he's literally ever been in the ocean, he's about to swim with a SEAL class. You know, further down the line to my left, there's like two all-American college swimmers, right? One of, the, one of those guys didn't make it, right? Yeah. I mean, Olympic caliber swimmer, didn't make it through, through training. Kid from Iowa, never been in the ocean, makes it through. 
right? So it's a nice to have, um, but it's not a guarantee. Is it a big? Is there a big team element to to buds? I, I recall one of my great mentors before I went to Ranger School said, "Cal, it's not about getting through Ranger School; it's about how you get through Ranger School." And I, I that was a paradigm shift for me. I never for me it was so much just like, "Oh, I just got to get through." Um, but I think the point he was trying to make to me at that time was, Cal, it's really about being a good team player. Is that is that a big aspect of of that of buds? It, it's a huge aspect. Um, I tell folks all the time if they're heading out there, I'm like, remember, and you'd be probably like you with Ranger School. I mean, you can tell plus or minus like this person has a chance. No one's guaranteed, right? But you can sort of, hey, you're 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 the, you're in the the zone of a person that can make it. And so the advice I'll one of the pieces of advice I always give is um, your 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 reputation in the in the SEAL teams starts day one of buds, like and seventeen years down the road, someone will remember and say after you walk out of the room, oh that's Cal, he was a he's a really good dude, or yeah he cheated on an evolution in buds, you know like seventeen years ago, same as Ranger School, p- people are going to remember like oh that guy threw me his M and M's, or he hoarded stuff from the rest of his, you know, or he was terrible as a PL going through ranger school or whatever. Um, that stuff sticks with you. Um, so in that way, absolutely. So the SEAL teams, I mean, obviously that's in the name. It's built around looking for, along with the grit and resilience, team-oriented personalities. Um, they leverage the the water very effectively for this. Um, in in SEAL training, you're never more than six feet from anyone. So you always got your your swim buddy that you're with at any given time. Um, if you mess that up, like I, I got messed that up one time in first phase, there's this, um, like the, the rope you would use on a ship, that big, huge, you know, eight inch around rope that you tie off to a pier. Um, the instructors have ropes like that, that, that there's two loops tied together. And wet, they probably weigh 110 pounds. I don't know. And so if you're ever caught too far from a swim buddy, you got to throw the rope on. And so you're now six feet from each other. And so not only are you being tortured, you got to pick somebody in your class and they're getting tortured with you until the instructors think you've learned your lesson. Um, So it teaches that like, not only is it up to you, but it's up to you not letting someone else make that mistake. Um, And then, you know, I always tell folks, unapologetically like hey the secret to making it through uh seal training is whenever you're feeling sorry for yourself or tired or you don't want to get out of bed or your knee hurts or whatever it is there's somebody in that class that is suffering more than you who will will eventually be a really good seal go find that person and help them and if you always do that when you're feeling bad you will make it through right because you will You'll never have time to sit down and have a pity party. You're just always ready for the next thing, and you're helping somebody else get ready for it. And by the way, you're going to be that that guy eventually, and somebody else will seek you out and say, hey, let's go. You can do this. I oh, love that. It makes me think of the framework you talk about. I think it's in one mission of ship, shipmate, self. Is that I, I love that concept. And I, I think interesting in that context to thinking about someone else shifts your your mind from yourself and, and probably makes it a little bit easier, uh, which is maybe counterintuitive. Yeah, and it's a great it's a great mantra for life, right? Um no matter where you are. I mean the the running joke in in in, in Buds was it could always be worse, right? 
if it's if you're if it's three in the morning and you're freezing cold, soaking wet and sandy, you know the the guy next to you be like, hey, at least it's not raining or whatever. Like at least there's always one more thing that be could be going wrong, right? Um, but if you combine that like with a an attitude of who else is suffering more? Can I can I help that that teammate out right now? And the Navy uh, saying there that we actually use in, inside McChrystal Group as our our sort of core value set is this idea of ship shipmate self, and um, you know the exact origin of that is, is, is debatable. But I always like the idea that it's tied to you know back in the day with no communication, wooden ship navies, you send sailors out to sea. The the primary uh, thing that needs to be taken care of is the ship you all share. The ship's on fire. If it sinks, if something bad happens, you're all going to die, right? You are all in this together. So you're constantly saying, "Is this ship healthy? Are we? Are we?" Which is our collective home right now. If it, if and when it's secure, and that's a reason. Like if you've ever been on a, a navy ship, it's a living organism. It is constantly being worked on. Um, it's always being painted. There's always electrical work being done. I mean, it is nonstop action from the day that a ship gets commissioned until the day it gets mothballed. Um, so that's the number one priority. When it's good, then you can look left and right for a shipmate. Is there a shipmate that needs a hand that, that I can help them finish their work? Are they, do they need somebody to ask a question to all the things we were just talking about? And when both those are secured, then you can look at yourself. Is my gear squared away? Am I ready to go for the next evolution? Uh, that's that sort of thing. And if you're the only person in the room that has that attitude, you're probably not on a great team, right? But if you're on a team where everybody has that attitude, you collectively will accomplish things that teams that look at themselves as individuals will n- never be able to pull off. I mean, the magic of the SEAL teams, and I would argue of the Rangers and all the special operations units, is... Um, they are not built of superhumans, right? Despite what we might want to see in movies and gets described occasionally in, in sort of books that try to capture those communities. Um, it's a bunch of decent, physically decent folks with a high ability to compartmentalize a lot of grit, relatively high tolerance for pain. And they know how to work together as teams. That's, that's the only differentiator. Um, I didn't know they certainly are out there, but in my generation in the SEAL teams, I didn't know a single like Olympic caliber athlete. And I've known plenty of Olympic caliber athletes. I've known a bunch of Olympic caliber athletes that wouldn't have a prayer of making it through Ranger School or SEAL selection because they're just too good, right? They, they can do it all by themselves and they're going to get put in an environment where you need to work with the five guys around you. And if you weren't brought up to think like that, you, those things are not built for you. Yeah, I love that you guys have adopted that as a mantra at uh, McChrystal Group. That I can imagine that that mentality creates a, a beautiful culture and something that you can probably uh, helps for screening people as they come in and helping people understand your culture. Uh, I want to ask you about uh, when you became the, the aide de camp for General McChrystal, uh, and maybe you can just quickly explain what that is. But I, I'm curious, what was that process like? What was that interview like with him to become the aide de camp? Sure, yeah, that was um, I don't know eight or, eight or nine years into my uh, career. Um, so, for those that don't know, um, in the military, once you make uh, general officer or flag officer, an admiral or a, a general in the, in the army or Marines, um, you start getting assigned st- staff positions around you, 
and one of those positions is an aide, aide de camp. Um, and the the history of that goes of that position goes back to, you know, the Roman legions, right? There there have always been these sort of quasi staff slash battlefield people that are around the general. Um, you know, famous case, most famous case in the U.S. would be uh, Alexander Hamilton serving as an aide to General Washington, right? And I think personally, one of the reasons that it evolved like that in the military was um, that going back to, you know, imagine the Roman legions, the, the, the great thoughtful leaders that ended up rising through the ranks understood, like, mostly what we're doing is moving big chunks of people around Europe or wherever we're going, right? It's logistically intensive. It's sort of, it can be incredibly boring and, and which can lead to danger where, you know, we've got a thousand soldiers just encamped waiting to see if we're going to move across the river and they might be there, you know, because the river's too high for months, right? So I've got a lot of logistics. So I have to have a huge supply chain that keeps them fed and all this stuff. Um, so there's a lot of logistics and bureaucratic stuff that they have to think about because I'm, I'm commu communicating back with with Rome, et cetera. And so they pull in really uh, unique folks from the ranks to be in their immediate staff to help with all that coordination, communication, speech writing, whatever it might be. But then there's also going to be moments where they're actually taking that army into war. And so I want that same staff around me to be able to run down the line, sometimes literally, and make sure all the colonels, et cetera, know exactly what the intent is for the next thing. Because I, you know, I don't have an M byte or radio that I can get on and, you know, tell the, the left flank what to do next. And so uh, a much different type of warfare. So they learned how to use that staff very well. So fast forward to the modern militaries around the world, they also have the, those positions. Um, and in, in the U.S. military, they're used generally, not always, but generally as a, almost kind of a grad school is how I describe it to young officers that are, that are thinking about um, interviewing for a position or whatever. Like think of it about as going to one year of leadership graduate school, right? So you get, you get positioned right next to this, in my case, a three-star general who was at that time commanding a very specific part of the counterterrorism units around the world. Um, and he'd been doing that for, for several years. So I ended up working with him during his fourth of five years running that community. And, you know, you're right next to that person for, generally speaking, about a one-year tour. You sit in all the meetings or as many as you can. You're taking notes. You're handling sort of email traffic back and forth. When they're visiting units, you're out there listening how they're, how they're interacting with those units. So you get inside their heads on strategic focus, why strategic focus is what it is, you know, all these things that are tends to be multiple layers removed when you're that mid-grade officer. And it's a finite window. So I always tell folks, you know, take advantage of it, you know, pay attention, take copious notes, look at it as every day is going to class. And the return for that, you're, you know, you're, the tuition you're paying is you got to make sure the general gets where they need to be on time, right? You got to make sure that they're always ready. Like there's a bunch of uncool, unglamorous work that has to be done perfectly. And if you do that for the principal you're working for, then you get this amazing opportunity to listen to all the dialogue. And I was at, I happened to be in that position 2007, 2008, I think, um, during one of the peaks in conflict in Afghanistan, Iraq. You know, Gen General Petraeus at that point was running I Iraq as all the conventional forces there. 
General Odierno was running the U.S. forces underneath Petraeus. Uh, Mike Mullen was back in the Pentagon. Um, I mean, just all these phenomenal leaders all over the battlefield. I'm working for McChrystal and able to sit as this, you know, nobody mid-grade officer in the room when, you know, McChrystal, Petraeus, Odierno, Admiral Crocker are thinking through, like, is the the is the awakening working? Like at the time, you're like, this seems kind of cool, right? I'm I'm exhausted, but yeah, I'll, I'll listen to this until I got to make sure the helicopter's ready to go. But in hindsight, you're like, oh my god! I mean, you're sitting every other day is going to be in a history book somewhere. And so the the only thing I think I did right that year was whenever I could. Uh, and so this is the advice I give to others that are have that opportunity. I was trying to pay attention, right? I didn't catch all of it. I didn't understand all the nuance, but you certainly see behind the curtain. I'm like, this is how the folks that are in charge have to think about and digest this information. And so, yeah, the the, the process to get there was, for me, I think each one's unique. Um, McChrystal, he was in charge of a joint force, which means, for your non-military listeners, um, that all of the services could work underneath him. Um, so it was a joint special operations command so there were, you know, Marines, Navy, Army, et cetera. And so he he did a really good job of rotating where he could his staff positions between those different services. So he'd had a few Rangers as in his aid position. So he reached out to the SEAL community and said, hey, I want somebody from, from your community to roll up here and be, be in this aid position for a year. And uh, through a whole series of circumstances, I happened to be in the right spot at the right time. Interviewed for the position, honestly, wasn't particularly interested in being an aide, which a lot of folks can relate to. Like I was, you know, wearing body armor and leading folks and like doing these pretty cool things. And hey, would you rather like walk around with a notebook and a pencil for a year? Um, and so, you know, I didn't understand the position at the time, but when I, I so I was sent up to do, uh, to sit down with McChrystal and, and interview with him and some other staff members. And I was very neutral on, you know, if I get selected, I'm sure it'll be interesting, but would I, if asked what I want to do, I'd rather stay at my command and, and keep deploying with, with my units. And uh, so I thought I had this very creative way to get out of it, um, which, which he sort of set me up when he, I figured I was going to get this question, like as everybody does, like, do you want this job? And I said, Something like, well, it's, I didn't ever have the intention of being an aide because here's where I am right now in my career. Um, that said, I do find it very, an interesting opportunity because I've been on the receiving end as a tactical unit operational level guy uh, of what, sh- what I think has been happening at the command level. You've been, it seems like rewiring the way that we communicate and there's a lot more authorities being pushed down to the front lines, et cetera. Um, and so I don't know if that's just an effect of you being a very uh, focused and high energy capable leader, or if there are actual system processes that, that are changing underneath, behind the curtain where, where most of us can't see. So to be able to observe that for a year seems very interesting to me. And I thought that was like this very articulate way of him thinking, this guy's a nerd. And so I don't want him on my staff. And in, in hindsight now, obviously Stan and I are good good friends. He's like, no, I mean, the second you said that, 
you got the job. It's like no, nobody's nerdy enough to care about like process change. And that was what he was focused on. Like he, for years, he'd been changing all these little processes. And so I un, unwittingly sort of talked myself into the position because of the way he was wired. So that's how I ended up there. Wow. I love that. That's so cool too, to think of the relationship that's built there and, and all that you all have accomplished together uh, in the in the military and in the private sector. I, I want to ask you about uh, General McChrystal and uh, him as a leader. You've gotten to observe him in both contexts. What are some qualities about him that really stand out? And, and then I want to ask you about some moments, but what are some qualities about his leadership that really stand out to you? Um, you know, we all talk about servant leadership as, or I guess more recently, maybe over the last 10 or 15 years, it's become this sort of understood norm and ideal. Um, I don't think it was as commonplace in conversation, you know, 15 years ago. Um, but Stan is the first person I saw that, and I didn't even know that term really when I started working for him, but he embodies that, the intention of a servant leader. Um, he, he will always put himself in position to serve the mission, serve the organization, serve those that he's on a team with. Um, and he did that time and time again when he was commanding the forces where I worked for him. Um, you know, as a small example, but the he was in charge of a force who the leadership could really position themselves anywhere around the world, and but they had been designed to sort of run things out of... Uh, out of the United States and four deploy small elements all over the world. And that model had worked completely well for, for 20 plus years. And when he took that job on in 2003, he immediately recognized the, this fight will be won or lost in Iraq out of the gates. And then eventually that became Afghanistan and there was a little bit of back and forth there. And so within a few months of taking that command, he just said, I'm, I'm going to where the fight is, right? And he just forward deployed himself, which was his uh, right to do. And then he stayed forward in that fight. He ended up being in that position for five years, which is about two and a half times longer than the average tour. There's a whole other history as to why he was left in that role. Promoted from two-star to three-star while in the position. And he probably, once he forward deployed after figuring things out very quickly, in the remaining four years and 10 months, he probably came home 30 days. And he just lived in the fight for five years straight. And to me, that was like one of many, but sort of the pinnacle example of, of servant leadership. Like, I'm not going to ask anybody to, to do anything that I don't have the ability to do. The fight is forward, and I will position myself there until this thing is over. And the only thing that got him out of there was <laughs> he was... Uh, promoted up to, to take on the, uh, the J3, the, the operations role in the joint staff working then for, for Mike Mullen. Um, so countless other things like that, but, but at the end of the day, I mean, that, that was the core leadership behavior and driver that I think, um, he still embodies to, to this day. Um, but also, you know, I think that back to maybe like when we're talking about selection, the learned versus born, there's so many things about really fantastic leaders that I think some of us, and I'm guilty of this all the time, like to put in the born category. Uh, but things like that, no one's born to deploy for four years and 10 months out of five years, right? That's a conscious decision. Um, 
almost all of us that are part of units like that could make that decision. Um, few of us have the the discipline, the focus, and the willingness to be able to do it, right? Um, and there are a whole series of other learned behaviors, I think, with someone like, like a McChrystal or other great leaders that, that many of your listeners will have worked for over the years. Um, like, I, I remember... Um, after I'd worked for Stan, had his reputation of um, only sleeping four hours a day. Um, and some people want to see that and say, well, and I w- I've been guilty of this myself, right? Well, that that's kind of superhuman. That's next level uh, Olympic caliber. So I'll never be that good. And in honesty, I, after working closely with him, and now like we've been friends for, for years, um, he doesn't sleep a lot, um, but he's he's not going to go four hours of sleep forever if he doesn't have to. The reason he was sleeping four hours a day and he was physically and mentally exhausted, the reason he was doing that, one, you're under this incredible stress and pressure, right? Running, you know, those units were doing around the world 10 to 15 operations every single night for years on end, seven days a week. So the, the intense pressure of that makes it really hard to sleep, right? So it wasn't necessarily a choice. There weren't a lot of relaxing days. And the other was the operational tempo just required it. He had built out this incredibly disciplined calendar that ran this organization globally. He knew exactly where he fell into it. And so that was just a choice that he made. Like, this is how I have to live for us to be successful. Um, And so it's just all those like little things that add up to a lot that I saw him consciously deciding to do that were, you know, the main lessons I, I took away from my time with him. Thanks for sharing that. I, I really appreciate it. And I, I remember when I had the opportunity to interview him on the podcast, uh, he said something that struck me and I wish I'd followed up with him on it, but he said that in his view, the most important leadership quality is self-discipline. Uh, and that was really interesting, but it, it sounds like that's something that he certainly lives out. Uh, I'm sure not perfect at it by any means, but certainly something that he he lives out in his leadership. Well, Chris, uh, we only got one minute left. Um, I want to ask, so I, I want to ask your advice for the young leaders out there. We, we are fortunate to have a fair number of, of new leaders, young leaders listening. And I'm just curious if you could give them any advice, what would be your top advice to, to a new leader out there? Um, I mean, there's so many, so many things to uh, for young leaders to think about. I'll, I'll throw a few out and break your rule of, of one. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. The you know the ob- there's obvious ones around. Hey, you know, understand your people, talk, communicate, etc. Those those skills have to be built over time. But I think as I get older, um, the advice, maybe non obvious advice that I try to give young leaders is uh, life is a lot longer than you might think. You're going to have multiple chapters. Um, the great leaders that you'll be around, if you sit down and get to know them and have a beer someday, you're going to find out all of them have a very, most of them had a very unprogrammed, nonlinear path to get to where they were. Um, and so be ready for the disappointments, the job you don't get, the sergeant you can't figure out, um, and you feel like you're a terrible platoon leader, whatever it is, because uh, that happens to every great leader. And if you're not having those experiences, you might be uh, over-programming yourself to just constantly look, look for the next A-plus on your test, right? So be willing to just get dirty, make mistakes, learn from them fast, and don't get discouraged. In fact, those early failures, which I can recount more than most of your listeners will have to go through, um, 
are what are going to make you an effective leader down the road because you're going to know how to coach and mentor others through those similar challenges. But don't don't protect yourself from them and don't try to protect others from them. That's oh, so good. Oh my gosh, that's so consistent with just some themes of what I've been reading and learning of just how you know, the long road and the path of life and step-by-step step and how wisdom is, is really formed. It's not something, there's no shortcuts to wisdom. Uh, and, and I love that. Uh, well, Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure. Will you leave us just by telling us real quickly where people can find you, find them a crystal group. You guys got some exciting, you just came out with a, a recent book on risk and I love your weekly whiteboards. There's just a lot of great things that the crystal dupe is, is doing. I'd love to give you just one minute to share with the, the folks listening. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the easiest resource is just mccrystalgroup.com. Uh, I mean, that's our consulting website, but it's got links to all the books we've written. We, we, we put up tons of just anything we're working on IP-wise. We've got tons of playbooks on there that might be of interest to some of your, your corporate listeners. Um, link to our podcast, No Turning Back, that Stan and I do uh, on a weekly basis. Um, anything that might be up there, is that, that's the easiest spot to go. Awesome. Well, Chris, thanks so much for your time today. I hope you and your family have a wonderful Christmas and uh, look forward to, to staying in touch. Thanks, Cal. I appreciate it. Hey, friends. Thanks again for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Chris Fussell. I'm so honored to have you be part of this community. Thank you for listening to the interview. Let me know what you think. Shoot me an email at cal at calwalters. Dot me. I would love to hear from you and what you thought of this interview with Chris. What did you get the most out of it? What what stood out to you? Maybe something you didn't agree with. Is there anything that Chris said or I said that you disagree with? Would love to hear that as well. I'm also on a journey to grow and get better and learn. Um, a couple things that really stood out to me. I love just hearing his perspective on what the best leaders are doing. The best leaders, as he talked about uh, with General McChrystal, that idea if you're getting mortar fire, you're moving. So the best leaders are not sitting around just sulking, just acknowledging how hard things are. The best the best leaders are figuring out, okay, what's working? And then just moving in that direction. I thought that was just a very simple way to think about leadership and just, just making, just moving. Uh, also love, I don't know if he said this line a couple times when he was talking about SEAL training, and it's the compartmentalization of micro moments. That stood out to me. He mentioned that a couple times thinking about those that get through SEAL training, they're able to compartmentalize those micro moments. They don't get focused on, okay, in six months, I'm going to finally be out of here. They're focused on, I just have to get through this next round of push-ups, or I have to get through this next swim. And so they're able to really be present and just focus on, okay, what is the task in front of me that supports this larger goal of getting through SEAL training? Uh, so I thought that was important. So any of us going through something difficult, focus on the compartmentalization of those micro moments. What do I have to do right now? What is the next right thing that I have to do? As Elsa would say in Frozen 2, for those that have seen that movie. Also, I love just this concept of ship, shipmate, self. Ship, shipmate, self. He taught and explained that, I think, very well, especially in the context of the Navy, how important the ship is. And the ship is your organization. The ship is your team taking care of that that entity, which exists in and of itself, making sure it has what it needs, making sure we have the equipment, the resources, the systems are in place. And then looking elsewhere, looking outward, who can I help today? Who can I who's struggling worse than me? 
and then and then taking care of yourself. Obviously, I don't think that means that you don't need to lead yourself. Of course, you need to lead yourself because then you bring your best self to the team. But it's thinking kind of in that order. I just thought that was a really helpful concept. And I love the, the, the advice he gave for young leaders. I think that's applicable for young leaders. I think it's applicable for older leaders, more experienced leaders. For, for me, it makes me think about who am I becoming? I have a lifetime to become someone. And I hope that over time, I'm becoming a better person. I'm becoming more a person of love, of joy, of peace, of patience, of kindness, of gentleness, of, of self-control, of, of self-discipline. I'm becoming more of those things. I'm becoming a better father, becoming a better husband. Uh, and so I just love that concept of thinking about your life on maybe a little bit longer time horizon. Uh, as, as James Clearwood says, what the aggregation of marginal gains over a lifetime can make a big difference. I hope you got something out of this. Thank you again so much for joining our community here at Intentional Leader. Remember that life is short, even though we want to focus on the long term. Remember that you don't have that much time. So remember to make it count. Go love on the people around you. I appreciate you being here. Have a great day.